You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Adam Brown's life without alcohol was heavily defined by his relationship with David. David, a stranger who was in his life for only a short time, but someone who had a profound influence. I would go, I would start going to these meetings and I would see this guy uh, in, in the Castro uh, in, in San Francisco, where I would go to most of my meetings, um, you know, which is predominantly a, a gay area. It's not limited to, but it's predominantly a, a, a gay area. And this guy looked like, he was speaking of, of Star is Born, he looked like Bradley Cooper. Uh, he was a Boston guy. And, um, and he, and the way actually Bradley spoke with that kind of that that low Boston mumble like he spoke exactly like that so when I saw that movie that hit me really hard because this so this this guy's name was was David and uh and he was always flushed in the back of the room spoke to no one and I found him extremely attractive I mean he's Bradley Cooper right but just a little more (laughs) But yeah, he had, he had that 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 Boston Irish look, and uh, uh, my sponsor immediately was like, "Stay away from that one. <laughs> That's trouble." And I had to go back to the uh, uh, old apartment where the toxic relationship was to pick up a, a parcel, and you know, I, I called this person, didn't answer, nothing, and then I I couldn't drive at the time, obviously. So I took a bus to my old apartment to pick up this parcel. And there Dave was on this bus and I recognized him. And uh, me being kind of the, the extrovert that I can be, just decided to just sit right next to him and go like, hi, I've seen you at, at 12-step meetings. <laughs> uh, you know, my name's Adam, what's yours? You know, decided to, to spark up a conversation. And he was just so bewildered, like, why is this person talking to me? You know, he was just trying to keep to himself. And uh, <laughs> so it's like, so yes, I've seen you at meetings. What brings you to meetings? He's like, yeah, I, I had a DUI uh, back in back in Boston. And I said, oh, oh me too. <laughs> like, he's like, I was like, well, yeah, I, you know, I, I did something stupid. I, I got in a blackout on a highway and now I'm, you know, I'm serving for it and I'm, and I'm, I'm getting sober now. And, and, and he just kind of very lowly mumbled. Like, he's like, well, yeah, I, I, I got into a, a crash and, and punched a cop. 
and I, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, bad boy, that's hot. And <laughs> it was horrible, but but I was just like, okay, I'm I'm intrigued, and I I didn't think I was gonna see him again. And then I had to go deal with getting the parcel from this this prior relationship, and um, and that didn't end up well. Uh, then I saw David again at another meeting, uh, sitting in the back face was flushed, still couldn't hold a day sober together for the life of him, wasn't talking to anyone. And so even though I was attracted to him and, and whatnot, I I realized I'm like, okay, this guy is not gay. He's very much a straight guy, but he's hanging out with all these gay people in these gay meetings. When you're when you're in that situation, the, the disparity is like as long as you can get the support anywhere you are, you know, you it's it's one of the biggest underground clubs in, in the world. So it's like you know, you can show up at any one of those and you, you get support. And so I thought to myself, I'm like, well, I might as well do what you're supposed to do in the program. Uh, for someone who is struggling and has less time than you. And I think I only had like a month or, or a couple months sober at the time. And so I extended my hand and I basically gave him my number and I said, if you need anyone to talk to, feel free to give me a call uh, after the meeting. And never expected in a million years that he would actually use my number. Um, most people are too afraid to actually look at themselves and work on themselves enough to even ask for help, um, which is, you know, that's the first step in order to, to even get it is, is you have to ask for it because because it's that, that gift of desperation that will take you with your curiosity to actually learn and, and transcend more. But I want to say it was like about a, a week or two later, it was a, a, a I think it was a, I want to say it was a Friday night or Saturday night, because um, it was the weekends where I had to go clean these jail cells. And, <laughs> and I get this phone call and it's, it's him, it's David. And he, he, he'd been drinking and he was very lively, which was uncharacteristic of him because he was such a wallflower. And uh, he basically kind of went on to say, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm across town at home, you know, in, in the area where, where I used to live, uh, which is why I met him on the bus. And, uh, he's like, I, I've, you know, I'll be honest, I've been drinking. I don't want to do this anymore. And then he went on to say, uh, Adam, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm so lonely. I, I don't have any friends. And I, I need someone to hold me tonight and I want it to be you. Wow. And did you go? I about dropped the phone. <laughs> and I, I paused for a minute. And I was like, sure. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. You, you can come over. Um, I didn't feel threatened that that he'd been drinking, um, even though I wasn't able to be around it. I I felt like this was a genuine soul who wanted to connect. And he took a cab over, came to my apartment, was was like drenched in sweat, 
And he thanked me and started talking about how he didn't understand how adults had such a hard time connecting with each other. And he told me a bit about what he did. He was uh, an assistant teacher for special needs children. And he talked about the innocence of these kids that he worked with and a field trip that he recently had to go on with the, with these kids and how beautiful that like one of them would walk up to the, the bear cage and just started singing to this bear at the zoo. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, who is this wonderful, beautiful soul in my house who's obviously been drinking and I'd never get these psychic visceral images but it was I remember when he was explaining that it was it looked like I was looking at this wooden crate that was like a charred black and it was trying to like there was this white light that was trying to break through the cracks of this this charred wood that was trying to come out that's, and I, I, I physically actually saw that, which was just really strange because that's never happened to me before and hasn't happened since. So the conversation dies down and his energy dies down and he, he kept all of his clothes on and I, I held him through the whole night just as he had asked. And I was just completely beside myself how this beautiful man could actually be in my arms. So the whole night, I was just kind of like, this is everything I've ever wanted in this moment. And I just thought it was the most beautiful thing. And as the morning came and, and he came to, uh, he realized uh, as he sobered up that he was in bed with another man and didn't say a word and started going into the fetal position on my bed. <laughs> oh, damn. And I was like, oh, shit, okay. Uh, uh, so yeah, so obviously there's some psychological stuff that needs to be worked on here. And I just gently put my hand on his back and I said, you know, nothing, nothing happened. I said, you asked me to hold you and I did. And that was all that happened. And then I was like, well, I, I have to go clean these jail cells now for my community service. So I, I can't keep you here. And so I got a cab and shared it with him and I dropped him off at the subway station and held his hands in the back of his cab. And then I let him go at the subway station so I could go to the, to the jail. And he just had this puppy dog look on his face I didn't think I was ever going to see him again. I thought it was just kind of like one of those one-off things where somebody decided to be vulnerable and then backtracked and never, never came back, which is very common, especially for, for people who might be questioning their sexuality. <laughs> and the whole time I'm, I'm, you know, I'm cleaning these jail cells and I'm, I'm folding you know, orange jumpsuits and, <laughs> you know, uh, and I, the, it kept replaying in my mind what had just happened the night before. And I realized I was just like, I, I feel like I have to just call him. And I left him a message and I said, 
I don't know about you, but um, I just wanted to say thank you. That was incredibly special for me. And I just left it at that. Um, Did you really to... expect any return call? No, I, I didn't. I, I honestly never in a million years thought I would see him again. I thought it was just one of those one-off experiences. And two days later, he he calls me back and and he's like, Adam, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to get sober. Wow, what a revelation. So what was what was incredible was over the next year, we, we kind of met every week on Fridays for a specific meeting. And then there was this, this group of, of gay guys that really took a liking to him uh, and me to kind of support him. And they would do what we call like fellowship after the meeting where everyone would go to dinner and, and you would get that, that social support. And over time, as we, we did this every Friday, a lot of our mutual friends around us, you know, through the program and whatnot, started kind of letting us know they were like, you know, you guys are together, right? <laughs> we we're like, what? What do you, what do you mean? Uh, well, you, you guys are like having a total like romance. <laughs> like, uh, Okay. And what was interesting was without even telling our friends through that whole process of accidentally getting sober together, none of us, neither one of us actually tried to make it happen. It just happened. And we were taking what we were learning from the 12 steps and we had made a promise to each other that um, we'd both come out of these toxic relationships yet he still spoke to his ex-girlfriend, which I didn't understand. And um, he, he spoke with her every day. And then after he spoke with her, he would call me every night at 9 p.m. on the dot, like clockwork, uh, to the point where I got annoyed. But it was nice to have somebody that cared enough to actually call me every day. Because uh, I I've never had that before. And I, I've never had that since, actually. And you were yourself still in the you know, early stages of of your program as well you know you're only a few months ahead of him yeah and so we we had promised each other that we were going to practice using what we were learning on the steps to understand how to have a healthy relationship and work on ourselves individually and then bring what we had learned back into the relationship with no expectations of any outcome or uh, future. It was literally just that the, we're going to practice on being better people with each other. And after a while, it did kind of dawn on us that we were a thing and people were talking about it. And it was weird because it, because it wasn't, it wasn't sexual, but it felt like it transcended that. It felt like it was, um, you know, a pure soulmate relationship that, uh, you know, sexuality, um, gender didn't, didn't matter. And it got to the point where he even, he fully accepted it to the point where um, he'd start introducing me as his gay boyfriend and I'd introduce him as my straight boyfriend. And was he at any point defining his sexuality at that time? No, it was interesting. He decided to be celibate at that time because he did not want any, um, 
weird like emotional interference um that went any deeper than what he was already working on so uh you know which i think is a very healthy decision and i did not decide to to do that but that ended up just kind of happening and i and i kind of realized that i i mean even though i still flirted with other people and was very like sexual with other people my my actual relationship needs were were met at the time even if i wasn't quite aware of it and it did get to the point where we were affectionate uh, even in public so like he would put his head on my lap like in meetings or you know we'd hold arms down the street and, and whatnot and yeah, so it was, it was it was kind of interesting. Like like people would come up to me after he would leave, because uh, because so, so Friday nights actually ended up becoming our date nights after we did our meeting, had dinner with this group of people. Uh, we would then go have like pie and tea, and that was just kind of like our our thing. And uh, but whenever we would separate, you know, our friends would be like, well what do you think will happen when something shifts where, you know, one of you finds someone else or decides to, to make a change? And I said, you know what, uh, that doesn't matter. Uh, this is working now. And I, I don't want to sabotage that. So how long did it take before anything changed? Well, what was interesting was as we started kind of getting to know each other over, over the following year, he would he would still call me every night he was and he was working so hard on himself not just getting sober but he was working towards his uh master's degree in special education and he decided to start mentoring an autistic child and this child's mother was just so in awe of David's work with this child because he'd made so much more headway than any other therapist or person in the industry ever had. And he'd been doing a lot of research on, um, I'm forgetting the terminologies now, but it was uh, on kind of sensory therapies with like water and, and things like that. And it was it was fascinating because he he even told me uh, months in he said you know I I grew up in this, the special education system and uh, he said you know my whole purpose in life is uh, I don't want any child to ever feel like they're a second class citizen just because they're in special ed and I was like wow that's so amazing to have that kind of dream and purpose I didn't even have that dream or purpose I didn't even find my dream or purpose until just recently. But he was growing tremendously and making such headway with this child. And he got his master's degree. Um, he got one year sober. And then he started having these breathing issues and couldn't figure out, you know, what was actually happening. So he actually would start going to the doctors in the ER and they were doing like EEG readings and EKG readings and uh, you know, he's hooked up to all these machines and they were giving him Percocet, which he just hated. And uh, he would you know, be talking me through this, this process of, of, of what was happening. And he just turned 33. And one night, it was a Thursday night, so it was, it was the day before we usually do, did our Friday meetings. And my friend was visiting from Miami and I hadn't seen my friend in a while. And so I went to go and hang out with him and, and I got home probably maybe about 10 30 PM. 
And I realized David hadn't called because he, he would always call at 9 p.m. on the dot every day to tell me what was happening. And so I left him a message and I said, oh, um, you, you haven't called this evening. I just thought I'd call and say hi. And I love you. That was the first time I had ever said that. So the next day I went to our normal meeting. He wasn't there. And I'd asked around and uh, I asked a sponsor, had no idea. I asked our, our group of friends that we did dinner with every night. They had no clue. And I had to go out of town for the weekend. I was spending some time with my, my family. And so a few days had passed and no answer. Spoke to, spoke to our mutual friends. Nobody knew what was going on. Of course, I started getting worried and I called around all the hospitals uh, in San Francisco. He hadn't checked in anywhere. A couple of days had passed after that. And I was just about to go back to San Francisco when I received a call from his brother. And he said, uh, is this Adam Brown? I said, yeah, David's gone. Wow. And that was from his breathing condition or there was obviously something underlying? Well, the interesting thing is that for the next months to come, um, the doctors couldn't figure it out. Uh, they had to do an autopsy and everything. And um, it, I, keep, I keep forgetting the medical term. It's like aortic desertion or something where the heart grows abnormally, kind of larger in some area. And then over time, the blood just stops uh, pumping. And so that night... Um, that Thursday night, the first time I said, I, I love you, uh, he, he passed away in his sleep. And um, so we never got to hear that message. No. No, he, he never heard it physically. So what was interesting was his, his family decided to take the, the body back to, to Boston and I realized I had to do something for the people that knew him uh, in San Francisco. And I didn't know how to get a hold of everybody. I didn't have their contact information. A lot of them I didn't, hadn't even met. But I put out an announcement that I was having a memorial. And I did it very quickly because I mostly did it for the mother of this, this autistic child that, that he was mentoring because um, I knew that she was never going to have that kind of help again, which she hasn't, I'm still in touch with her, but I, I think I invited like 30 people and um, 60 people came. Wow. And uh, what was amazing was I was on my 11th step at the time in the program. And I realized that the work that I had done on myself gave me the capacity to be able to walk through that situation. If I had been, still been drinking, I probably would have been so depressed. I would have killed myself. But because of the work that I had been doing, it was such a shift of actually facing my largest fear was being the survivor in a relationship with somebody I deeply loved. And the strange thing is I was attracted to all those stories like, you know, like Harold and Maude and Moulin Rouge and stuff. And I, you know, and here I am in, in my mid-30s living it, never, never thinking in a million years that that would happen in my life, especially that young. 
And I met the, the family briefly, except for his mother. He had a, a kind of a tumultuous relationship with his mother, who was also an alcoholic. And um, But I met his father and uh, his, his brother. And uh, I met the ex-girlfriend that he still spoke with every day, which I did not understand at all. <laughs> uh, it, it made no sense to me. So when I showed up to meet all of them, I, I, sh- I show up at this cafe where they all were to kind of meet his San Francisco friends before taking the body back to Boston. And, you know, this, this girl walks up and she says, are you, are you Adam? I was like, yes. And she just starts crying and falls into my chest. And I held her and I realized this is, this is the ex-girlfriend. And she told the family about me. Uh, the family had no idea about me. You know, how do you, how do you explain that relationship, especially when, and he already had a strained relationship with them as it, as it was. So, uh, because she already, they were together for like 10 years. And so she was fully aware of the process that he'd been through to stop drinking and find this new meaning. Yeah, she was fully aware and she was fully aware of my relationship with him in regards to, to that process happening in his life which I did not know he was sharing with her. (laughs) And in that moment when she collapsed into my arms, I realized, oh my God, I have no right to judge this woman whatsoever. She loved him just the same as I loved him. He's gone. That's all that matters. And, you know, she, she had you know, a good decade with him. I was just with him in the last year of his life. So I had no reason to hold anything against her. And in fact, we actually bonded over it and became friends over it. And then when the family decided to spread half of his ashes back in San Francisco, they included me and her in the decision on where to spread the ashes in San Francisco, which I was astonished that I was even in included in that decision process fortunately um i was i was you know as the banker so i had convinced him to move his finances with with my institution before all of that happened so i was able to easily allocate his funds to his uh sister as as his beneficiary and this this was just two months after i had reached my first year sober not only did I have to get sober, but I literally had to walk through my biggest fear. <laughs> and what was amazing was the community around me supported me through that. And I didn't even have to ask for help at that point. They just knew. Adam, you must think of this story all the time. It must be your inspiration to keep going um, and to maintain your sobriety. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kind of the promise I made to myself and to him after he passed was, you know, I'm, I'm going to still do this for the both of us and not just for him and, you know, but, it, but also for me and to, to live that essence of, 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 of embodying, you know, the, the meaning of that self-growth and that, that, that transcendence and, and, and personal growth as, as part of my journey, uh, you know, it, it, it's become this staple moment in my life. That's, that's driven everything for, for me to try to define what my dream is to 
go after it, to not be afraid to make those leaps anymore. And now I actually help coach people through that, which is, you know, which is what I do. And, and, you know, um, one of my dreams was to, was to move to London and start a business and, and uh, here I am doing it, which I never thought was attainable before. And I'm able to define, you know, what my purpose is, which is, uh, you know, advancing human consciousness through science, spirituality, and business. I've never had that before, but my relationship with David, because he inspired me so much with having such a purpose when we met and helping these kids in, in, in special ed, uh, it, it drove me to realize the value of having a dream in life. So it's what's, what's really interesting was uh, I would get kind of uh, jealous because he would tell me about this autistic boy's mother uh, was a family friend of the famous tattoo artist, Ed Hardy. Ah. Who, who is also in San Francisco and he doesn't actually do it anymore he just uh, he just runs the the actual like art and the, and the clothing but the um his son actually runs a tattoo shop that he owns um in San Francisco and so as kind of a uh, memorial I went at, to that tattoo shop and got this tattoo. Uh, it says dream and it's all in purple, which was his favorite color. And the D, the R and the M are actually also in purple, but you can, you can barely see it, but uh, those are actually his initials. And That's incredible. <laughs> so when I went to, to Doug, Doug Hardy, Ed's son, when I went to, to him for this tattoo, he was like, well, why are you here for this? And I told him the story and he was like, holy crap. So I was like, yeah, you, you're the one who has to do this because of, you know, it goes full circle with these connections. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know who these people are. And yeah, and and it's it's funny. Years later, of course, the 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 mother would you know send me photos of like Ed Hardy says hi, <laughs> and he, like waving. So it's like yeah, because he uh, a lot of people don't don't know this, but he's he's a very generous fella. He actually Ed Hardy paid um, you know because he's multimillionaire. He he paid for a lot of the expenses for for this autistic child. So yeah, so he's he's a. Uh, you know, cap on them all, all you want for the clothing, but uh, he's he's actually a really amazing, generous guy. It's it's interesting. I, this is the first time I've actually told this story, probably in a good nine years. I, I don't talk about it much any, anymore because it feels like uh, such a whole other life ago now. But I realized that, you know, just that one year, just that tiny amount of time made the biggest impact. Adam, thank you for being so vulnerable on the island. It was a captivating story. It's one that I can understand how it's influenced your life. And I've been involved with a program that you're running for the last five or six weeks. And we've talked about your ability to connect with people. So I can totally imagine how you were able to connect with David and create a priceless period of your life that has influenced you going forward. I have no doubt that your passion that you've landed on at the moment will be fulfilled and good luck with that and good luck in the future. And thank you so much for being on Max's Island. <laughs> thank you, Tony. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> we spoke on the bus 
On the way home from work, he was lost in the details of life. Each day was a blur, oh work and no play. And how, how had it turned out this way? He told me his plan, a short-term escape, five weeks on the Bibbulmun track. Go it alone, no one to blame if he finished or fell by the way. His mind was as clear as the sky Completely alone, no emails or phones 